great service this past Saturday night. It's a little bit awkward, isn't it, celebrating Resurrection Sunday on Saturday? But I think we made it. We did great. Our, our view is to celebrate regardless, right? And this coming weekend, there is no picnic, okay? We, we had to push that back uh, begrudgingly to Memorial Day weekend. So I need you to mark on your calendars May the 27th. That's Saturday, May the 27th at Lee P. Moore Park. It's just down, you know, on just down the road from where we used to meet at Brio Business Center, but um, probably two miles from here, very close. And we're going to give you further instructions. You'll probably need to bring a side dish, etc. Games, chairs, tents if you want it. But we're going to have a great time. Four churches will be getting together. I'm looking forward to it. So please, I know some of us, we like to kind of go out of town on Memorial Day weekend. Don't do it Saturday though, okay? And it's, we're just going to have a great time as we get together. But that's not going to be this coming Saturday, all right? It was. Uh, it, we were planning on doing that and things just, we just kept running into problems. And so, consequently, we're going to be doing it May the 27th. Is that a Saturday or Sunday? Help me out. Saturday, that's right. Thank you. You're listening. I love it. I love it. Join me in prayer. We're going to dig into God's word right now. Father, I want to thank you for the authority and the power of your word. It searches our hearts. It lays us open. It infuses truth in our spirit, it encourages, and yet it challenges. And I just appeal to you, Father, that your spirit would teach us tonight, not by words of men, but by words of your spirit. And that, Lord, that you would bring spiritual life, you would bring spiritual fruit as a result of our time spent with you. Thank you, Father. Give the church ears right now to hear what the spirit says. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. How many of you enjoyed the rain that we had this past week? I, I tell you what, I enjoyed it. I love listening that we just got the, our porch built right, and so the, the roof isn't real tinny, but you can still hear it. And I love sitting out on the porch now just listening to the rain fall on the roof, okay? Um, it, our, I'm, our bedroom's in the second story of our our house and at night when it rains we're just like right below the roof and you get to hear the rain and it puts you to sleep but I tell you what the drought that we had my lawn was like gone um, if you looked here and there with a magnifying glass you might have been able to see green and now the green is well I'm not going to say everywhere because it's still not under my large tree but we're, we're going to get there this year the truth, though, is when we go, th when our lawns or our flowers or whatever you've got planted, and by the way, have you seen Mickey Lana's flowers and the vegetable garden? It, you have vegetables there too, right? It's amazing. And, and I, I'll be honest with you, the, at the beginning of, what was it, last year, you had said that you had a flower, and I just felt it was just such a strange prophetic word the Lord just laid on my heart to share with you. I don't know if you remember that or not, but that the Lord wanted to make that lone flower that you finally got to bloom, that he's going to do something really amazing and just teach you about just nurturing that and what the fruit, the, the beauty that God is going to perform. And if you look in our front yard, it's everywhere now, okay, right? Yeah, so when the seed fell on good soil, what happened, church? What did it produce? Fruit, 30, 60, or 100-fold of fruit. Man, I want 100-fold of fruit in my life, okay? And that's not necessarily the finances. I'm not naming and claiming it. I'm just saying I want the fruit of the Spirit of what God does in my life and through my life. That's what I want, 100-fold, Lord God. And, and I don't think we should be satisfied with just 30. I don't think we should be satisfied with 60. I believe, though, that this is going to happen in the body of Christ because some are going to run hard after God and some are just going to feel as if they're on a little stroll through Central Park. And God is just saying, no, this is serious. So make the soil good. Prepare your hearts. Get rid of the weeds. Get rid of the rocks. Don't let the devil trample upon it and make it hard soil. Let the Spirit of God cultivate it. That's going to play right into the Word today. But this past week, my lawn was like dry, dry, dry. And then when the rain came, and you know what? It didn't rain the way it normally does in, in Florida. You know, it wasn't like these hor horrific thunderstorm rains where my lawn is just flooded. Though I wouldn't have minded 
that much water. But the truth is, it was just, it was gentle rain, and it's, it's now perking up, okay? And it's, I understand it's supposed to rain tomorrow, uh, just as long as it's not before your, uh, your airsoft game, right? The, or, yeah, during your airsoft game. The truth, though, is that spiritually, church, when we get stuck in survival mode, we're just like my lawn. And people are going to look at your life. You're going to look at your life saying, man, I feel so dried up. Now, I need, to, I need to be careful here because I'm not talking necessarily about your emotions. I am talking about your spiritual life. But I will tell you this, that when God impacts us, there's emotion there, okay? Because we're just wired emotionally. But if you feeling close to God is simply an emotion, careful about what happens when you wake up tomorrow morning, because that emotion may not be there. So I'm going to ask you, are you still close to God? So when I'm talking about just the Spirit of God refreshing us, I'm talking about something so much more than how that refreshing impacts us emotionally. Too many revivals or stirrings or, you know, revivals in quotes are simply emotional. Are you aware, and and I I just read this statistic, that about 90% of the people in America who walk an aisle to give their give their hearts to Jesus, about 90% of them fall away. 90% of them just walk away from the Lord. 90% of them don't continue to remain plugged in. 90% of them just feel as if, well, that was a nice time in my life. I'm moving on now. And and in part, I believe that in America, we have preached a gospel that is, hey, come to Jesus and look at all of the wonderful things he's going to do in your life. He's going to make you happy. He's going to prosper you. And church, this is not the gospel that Jesus preached. He said, if Paul said this, he said, Anyone who wants to live godly in Christ Jesus, man, are you going to have a fun time on earth. No, he said, those who would live godly in Christ Jesus will promise you will endure persecution. This is why the urgency in our life is let's get a hold of something that's real and genuine that is truly beyond the emotion, and God pours refreshment into our spirit. Because if we're caught in survival mode, church, that is what we need. And as I read through the very end of Judges, that's where we're going, so turn to Judges 17. The very end of Judges, this is not in chronological order. What happens is the first 16, well, the first three chapters are kind of an introduction about what really is the issue. Then we have chapters 4 through 16, and it's just judge after judge after judge that's listed, and how the people tended to turn to the Lord when there was a good judge, but when he died, they were walking away. And it's like, are are you serious? Do you remember the ABCDs? And it's like over and over and over. And they kept going back to the pig slop. They kept going back to survival mode and just hanging on. Well, they weren't hanging on. They were backsliding. And they were really walking away from God. And at the heart of survival mode, when we get stuck in survival mode, I'm talking talking beyond the emotions when life is just so hard, we feel like we're just hanging on. I'm not talking about that. That happens in a season. Press into Jesus. Us, but when you get stuck in survival mode and that's where you live, there is always compromise at the heart of that. There just is. And God wants to bring a refreshment. And when we look at the last five chapters of Judges, we get an interesting picture. A, in my opinion, as a pastor, a horrific picture of what the time of the Judges was like. And you step back and you see all of this compromise in your, and sin. And you're like, are these even the people of God? And can I challenge you before you're so quick to throw stones at that generation? How about if we examine our own generation? And if we could examine, if we could truly look with spiritual eyes at the church of Jesus today, or at least those who say they're a part of Jesus's church, we would be so heartbroken with the compromise that is at the heart of the way they live. And they are truly stuck in survival mode if they have even truly repented and truly believed in Jesus. 
I mean, I mean, truly many in the, the, the church of Jesus Christ are nominal Christians. They're Christian in name only. They, they've been preached a soft gospel. If that, many of the so-called churches don't even preach the word. They don't even do that. The church today, I want us to look. We're not going to read all five chapters. We're just going to read the first one, chapter 17. I'm going to tell you a little about chapter 18 because 17 and 18 go together. 19, 20, and 21, three chapters, they go together, and it's a different story. And if I were to read that one to you, you probably would not be able to listen to the whole thing. You would probably go like this, and you would think, did they really do that? Chapter 17, starting with verse 1. Let's dig into this. I believe that there is a fundamental answer to our question, how do we pull out of survival mode? And we looked at five or six ways in which God can do that. And we, we landed on the last one that it is truly about fighting. But I want to go back and, and ask, what is the fundamental issue that is it, that, that's, that's the real problem? Okay, so let's look at Judges chapter 17, verse 1. Now a man named Micah from the hill country of Ephraim said to his mother, The 1,100 shekels of silver that were taken from you and about which I heard you utter a curse, I have that silver with me. I took it. Then his mother said, The Lord bless you, son. <laughs> I'm sorry, I wouldn't have said that. <laughs> I said, son, we're going to the woodshed. Come with me. Anyway, verse 3, when he returned the 1,100 shekels of silver to his mother, she said, I solemnly consecrate. And you would expect her, church, when you were about to, okay, wow, she's probably so happy. She's going she's gonna, to she's gonna do something really amazing right now. I solemnly consecrate my silver to the Lord for my son. Are you ready for this? To make a carved image and a cast idol. Oh, you, you had me there and then What? To make a carved image and a cast idol, I give it back to you. And she truly believes this is noble. So he returned the silver to his mother and she took 200 shekels of silver, which my understanding is about five pounds of silver, and gave them to a silversmith who made them into the image and the idol. And they were put in Micah's house. What do you think? For what reason? For him to worship them. You know the utter, um, utterly amazing problem within idolatry that Israel faced? Are you aware of the fact that when they were at Mount Sinai and Moses was up there for 40 days. And remember they, they had made a, a golden idol. And Moses comes down and he throws the commandments, the Ten Commandments that he received from God onto the ground to symbolize that they had broken them. Do you realize that the idol that they made, they used to worship the Lord? It wasn't to worship Baal, the Baal of Peor. That was later. That was different. No, they used it to worship the Lord. Do you realize when Rehoboam and Jeroboam split. Jeroboam took the northern ten tribes. Rehoboam, the son of Solomon, took the southern two. So it was Israel in the northern kingdom, Judah in the southern kingdom. And that the northern kingdom didn't want his, Rehoboam didn't, Jeroboam rather, didn't want his people going to Jerusalem, which was in the southern kingdom. So he had a bright idea. I'm going to set up a calf idol in Bethel, which is in the southern portion of his kingdom, and a golden calf idol in the, uh, uh, calf idol in the north in the city of Dan, which, by the way, is the city that the last three chapters are, uh, the first two chapters here are about. And he says, you know what? I'm going to set them up, and we're going to worship the Lord there. And God said, no, you're not. That completely violates the second commandment. And all I'm saying is, in our idolatry, and she is no different, in our idolatry, we cloak it with a lot of religious stuff. To dress it up, make it look nice, and it deceives us. Even our sin looks so noble. I, I, I need to continue on here. So she returns the silver to, uh, he returns the silver, she makes these idols, and they're put in Micah's house. Verse 5. Now this man Micah had a shrine, and he made an ephod 
an ephod is what the priest would, re- would wear, and he regularly would use it, the high priest anyway, to get direction from Urim and Thummim, get direction from the Lord. We suggest that some of these, that ephods were at least a way to dress up like a priest. Uh, there were linen ephods, um, but this type of ephod, we, we don't know. He does get direction from the Lord in chapter 18, but the idea is that he made something that was specifically for priests. And it says right here that he made an ephod and some idols and installed one of his sons as his priest. Now, I want you to underline this. If you have an actual book Bible in front of you and it's not online, I want you to underline or highlight, it says verse 6, in those days Israel had no king, everyone did as he saw fit. Literally, it is everyone did what was right in his own eyes. This characterizes this generation. The A young Levite from Bethlehem in Judah, who had been living within the clan of Judah, left that town in search of some other place to stay. On his way, he came to Micah's house in the hill country of Ephraim. Micah asked him, where are you from? I'm a Levite from Bethlehem in Judah, he said, and I'm looking for a place to stay. Then Micah said to him, oh, live with me and be my father. Now, it's a young man speaking. Micah's an older man, we discover probably about my age or a little bit younger. So that's kind of young still, I think. But he's not as young as this Levite. But he calls him father. That was traditional priests and prophets. You would generally call fathers as spiritual guides. Live with me, be my father and priest, and I'll give you 10 shekels of silver a year, your clothes and your food. So the Levite agreed to live with him, and the young man was with him, and the young man was to him like one of his sons. Then Micah installed the Levite, and the young man became his priest, i.e. his personal priest, and lived in his house. Now listen to this, verse 13. And Micah said, now I know that the Lord, and that's his covenantal name, Yahweh, will be good to me since this Levite has become my priest. And we step back and we're saying, are you serious? What are the issues here? I wrote them down. Ten issues just in, in these two chapters. I'm not going to read the next one to you, but there are six with this one. Excuse me. There are five, six issues with this, four issues in the next chapter in which they just completely neglect the word of God. Number one, he stole money from his mother. And she's excited. I'm just so glad you returned it. No, come on. Is there no discipline? Is there no, I mean, he's your, honestly, an older man, but still, there's no consequences to this. Instead, she turns around to bless him. Yep, just trying to focus on the positive. Please. He confesses, returns it, and then he's rewarded for stealing it. But see, he gave it back. How noble. Number three, some of the money is solemnly consecrated to make idols for Micah. Wow. It breaks the first two commandments that Moses gave the Israelites. Number four, Micah makes a shrine, an ephod, and installs one of his sons as his personal priest. A clear violation of what Moses laid out, of what the Lord through Moses laid out. Only Levites could be priests. You don't have personal priests. Priests, additionally, served in the temple or they served in a city to serve the people. You did not have a personal priest. That means the guy's bought. You don't want to do that. Micah hires a young Levite to be his personal priest. Number six, Micah concludes that the Lord will be good to him. Why? Because he has his own personal priest. God must be so happy with me right now. The issue here is that there is a total lack of knowledge of the word of God, of the law. 
there is, if anything, that he has heard about the law, there's a total neglect in actually living it out. You go on in chapter 8, uh, excuse me, 18. Give me one second. There we go. And the Danites, they have been given a piece of land that is in the south of the whole area of, that's of Canaan that's been given to Israel. It's in the south, just above Judah, right next door to um, to Benjamin. But it's their land is enmeshed with the Philistines. And the Philistines were a hard people, conquering people. The Israelites regularly fought with the Philistines, and the Philistines had much of the Danite land. So they got they had this bright idea, let's go way up into the north, even though that land was not given to them, the land that they eventually seized was was part of Naphtali. It wasn't theirs, but they went up there because they had a little army and they conquered a particular city that was disconnected from all the people around them. They conquered them and now they lived there like happily ever after. Well, on their way up, they find Micah and they say, hey, we're going to just take all of your idols and the ephod and they're ours now. And as a matter of fact, the Levite comes out and says, hey, what are you guys doing? This stuff belongs to my master. You can't take it. And they basically say, well, says who and what army? And he says, well, look, guy, you can be our, you're serving a man here of one family. You can serve an entire tribe. So come and be our priest. And so they, they in essence, buy him off there with a, a cool job promotion. And Micah comes out following and says, hey, what do you do? You just stole all of my idols. I want those idols back so I can worship the Lord. And they say, uh, sorry, if you don't shut your mouth, some of the people among me, the, these men, they're going to get pretty ticked at you and they'll kill you and they'll take everything that you have and destroy your family. Now, this is for one Jew to another. Really? Let me just tell you the time frame of this. The time frame is the time of Moses' grandson. We read that in the second to the last verse of this chapter, chapter 18. Jonathan, son of Gershom, son of Moses. Wow. This happens in the very beginning of the, the, the time of the judges. And so I, I need us to see this because this begins to paint a picture that unfolds throughout this time frame of the judges now, the time of the judges was about 400 years. So between the time of this incident and the time that uh, Samuel comes on the stage right before King Saul, we're looking at about 300 years. This, these five chapters and just the way they think pervaded Ju the Israelites for 300 years. 300 years. So some Danites go to a city in Naphtali to settle there. It wasn't their property. It wasn't their land. It wasn't given to them. They, number eight, they steal the young Levite along with Micah's idols to worship them. Number nine, they threaten to kill Micah if he tries to take them back. And number 10, wow, the Levite is a descendant of Moses. Grandson, apparently. Of Moses. What has happened, church? How is this time, this era, so characterized by free living however they choose? You saw when I, I, you highlighted verse 6. In those days, Israel had no king. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. Or as the NIV says, everyone did as he saw fit. This refrain is repeated at the very end of these five chapters. It's the last verse in the book of Judges. You can read it yourself. Chapter 21, verse 25. In those days, Israel had no king, and everyone did as he saw fit, or everyone did what was right in his own eyes. There are two other places, one in chapter 18 and one in chapter... Um, I, I lost the chapter, unfortunately. Uh, very beginning of chapter 19... 
So there's two more places in which it just simply says, in those days, Israel had no king. In those days, Israel had no king. It's repeated four times. And in the first and the fourth, it adds, and everyone did what was right in his own eyes. What do you think the author of Judges is trying to convey to you and I, the reader? He's trying to convey this. Number one, the king was the one who was the judge of the land. He was the final authority. He was the one who would say, okay, you're appealing to me, because he was like the Supreme Court. And this is my verdict, and it needed to be based on the law of Moses, on the word of God. So the king needed to know the law, he needed to know the word of God, he needed to live it, and he needed to exercise justice based on the law. And then to say that everyone did what was right in his own eyes, it's simply because they didn't know the word of God. How do you think then a new generation, once Joshua had had died and all the elders that lived at his time, when they died, it says a generation grew up who knew neither the Lord nor the Lord's ways. It's because they didn't know the word of God. He didn't know the word of God. Turn with me, just real quickly. Turn with me to 1 Samuel chapter 3. This is when Samuel is a young boy. Don't know exactly how old he is, but he's a young boy. And it says, the boy Samuel, this is 1 Samuel 3, the boy Samuel ministered before the Lord under Eli. In those days, the word of the Lord was rare. There were not many visions. Can I just ask you, Samuel is living at the end now of the time of the judges. And let me assure you, nothing has changed. The mindset of the people has not changed. Every now and then there's like this little revival in which they realize, oh my goodness, we're sinning. And they only know this because God is bringing discipline into their life. Can I just ask you, for you to recognize that there is sin in your life that you need to repent from... Does that only happen when God disciplines you? See, the mature Christian doesn't need to be disciplined, though it happens, doesn't need the discipline to wake up, smell the coffee, and say, oh my goodness, how am I allowing this sin in my life? They're able to recognize it. Why? We're going to discover that now in just a few minutes. And this is something that if you can catch this principle, every single time you fall into survival mode, by God's grace, you will be able to come out of it. You will not get stuck in it if you do and follow this one principle. It's, it's technically two principles in one. We're going to discover that now in just a moment. The question I am wondering is, wow, how is it that the word of God was rare in those days? And by that, it, it simply means visions, revelations, that is fresh revelation. Not that we're looking for fresh revelation in our church, guys. Scripture has been complete, but God does still speak in dreams. He still speaks in visions, prophetic words. He speaks through us. He speaks to us, always in accordance with the word of God that's written. So the question is, that I'm wondering is, why does the author of 1 Samuel go out of his way? It's like it's a big deal. Because Samuel now has the first vision, apparently, in 300 years, maybe more. God is about to do something, and Samuel is raised up to accomplish that something. We're going to discover that in just a moment. Hang on, but just a moment. Wow. How is it that God has no desire for those 300 years during the time of the judges to give them fresh revelation. I'm going to tell you why. It's because they were not even following the original revelation. The word of God was there, and they they abandoned it. There was no one to help them, to teach them, to read it. None. Nothing. Turn with me right now to 2 Corinthians Excuse me, Second Chronicles. Second Chronicles. I'm sure there's something really good in Second Corinthians. You can go there if you want. You're just not going to be on the same page with us. Second Chronicles, chapter 15, verse 3. I'll just start with verse 1. It introduces it. This is during Asa's reform. Asa was a king of the southern kingdom, Judah. He was a godly man. Towards the end of his life, 
well after this incident, by the way, it happens in chapter 16, we're in 15, but he gets, he succeeds quite a bit and he gets filled with pride, arrogance. And he's challenged by, the, the, by a prophet, the eyes of the Lord range throughout the earth, King Asa, to strengthen those whose hearts are fully committed to him and yours is not. Asa commits a sin in which I won't get into, and he is disciplined by the Lord with leprosy for the rest of his life. He never, it seems he never truly repented of it, and that arrogance stayed. But here is a challenge. See, he had just had a huge military victory. And here is a prophetic word, a call, a challenge, because it's as if God happened to know what Asa's future was like. And he's saying, you know, if you can just live the way you're living right now and do what I'm about to tell you, then it will go well for you. But listen, if you don't. Now, here's what the... It, go, it goes on and it says this, because, excuse me, but the, the victory was he took about 500,000 people. It's actually 480,000 soldiers, and he went up against a, the, the, the land of Cush, which had 1.1 million soldiers, and they spanked them. I mean, spanked them because God stepped in. And Asa humbled himself and pressed into God and said, God, this is impossible for us. We will be destroyed. We need you. And he humbled himself and he pressed into God and God answered and Asa had a mighty victory. Verse one, let me just start. The spirit of God came upon Azariah, son of Oded. He went out to meet Asa and said to him, coming back from this great victory, listen to me, Asa and all Judah, and Benjamin, the Lord is with you when you are with him. If you seek him, he will be found by you. But if you forsake him, he will forsake you. For a long time, Israel was without the true God, without a priest to teach. Well, they had priests, they just didn't teach. And without the law. Because the priest was to teach the law. Verse 4. But in their distress, they turned to the Lord, the God of Israel, and sought him, and he was found by them. In those days, it was not safe to travel about, for all the inhabitants of the lands were in great turmoil. One nation within Israel, one nation was being crushed by another and one city by another because God was troubling them with every kind of distress. But as for you, be strong and do not give up for your work will be rewarded. What is going on? I believe that he describes this era, this prophet, Ezra, describes the era of the judges. Constantly repenting, constantly coming back to the Lord, then wandering off and then coming back. They were like some huge spiritual yo-yo, just abandoning God and then realizing, we're fools, what are we doing? Running back to God, finding themselves so enthralled and, and now successful and they forget the Lord and it's like over and over and over and over again. Without the true God, without a priest to teach, and without the law, without God. They did not truly seek him. It's later when Asa is starting to get filled with pride. He apparently is not remembering this word, and the prophet comes to him. The eyes of the Lord range throughout the earth, seeking to strengthen those whose hearts are fully committed to him, fully committed to him. Asa, are you fully committed to the Lord? Because if you seek him, you will find him. And it says right there that if you forsake him, he will forsake you. They were without God. They were not pressing in. They weren't seeking him wholeheartedly. They were perhaps half-heartedly seeking him. Maybe like Micah was doing, half-heartedly seeking God. Yeah, 
got a great plan with these two, with the, all, all of this money, all of this silver. Going to make a carved image and an idol. Excuse me, what a stupid plan. What a truly godless plan. And America right now, church, is drenched in this thinking. Why? Because not only have they abandoned God, but who do they run to to be taught about what they think is truth? They turn to the top 10 best-selling self-help books. They, it, it's, it's almost as if everybody has a counselor these days. And I'm not opposed to counseling. As a pastor, I counsel, okay? I'm not opposed to counseling as long as we're competent to counsel from God's word. From God's word. Because the job of the counselor is to give you truth. And if they can give you truth in a very palatable way, then you can build your life on that truth. You can build, as Jesus said, build your house, not upon the sand, but upon the rock, which is the teachings of Jesus. The, the problem with American Christians is that they're running to the wrong places to get truth. And let me use a metaphor here. They're running and taking drinks from broken cisterns, Jeremiah 3. And, and I, I love the way uh, The Chosen in one of their, in this past season, in one of their episodes, like four or five, whatever it is, um, Capernaum has a broken cistern. And... It's, it's, it's filled with sewage. Can you imagine drinking from a broken cistern? Now, the truth is that America, American Christians, many times, and, and, and I'm sorry because I'm, I'm kind of like including you, and, and I'm just saying generally speaking, but certainly not you, right? Generally speaking, when we go through problems, we look for the experts, right? And we look, oh, the Bible, that was written like 2,000, 4,000 years ago. Let, let's, so, so two to 3,000, 3,500 years ago. I mean, I want something relevant. I want truth for today. I want something that's going to help me. And this is what they are saying. And so they, they don't go to the word of God. They go to a counselor. And again, nothing against counselors except when they feed them from a broken cistern. That's the problem. And so in America, Christians, we have such access to the Bible, but we don't listen to it. We, we, we buy this, how am I going to be the best leader possible? And so they learn from ungodly men. Now, I'm not saying that everybody out there who writes leadership books that's not a Christian is you know, it's just a bunch of junk. I'm not going to say that because here's something that's interesting. Many of those top leaders learn from principles of pastors and other Christian leaders. And they realize, oh my goodness, these principles work. I'm going to start teaching them. But I'm, ju I'm just saying, church, we are running to the wrong people. Running to the wrong people. There's no priest that's going to teach them the word of God. And the law has not been made available to, for them to follow. Those were the three issues. Church, I'm going to tell you, here is the basic principle. The foundational principle. If you want to get out of survival mode, you need to learn how to love Jesus passionately. I'm not saying emotionally, though it can be emotional. I'm saying passionately, sincerely, with devotion passionately love him and love his word not just love it by putting it as a nice decoration on your bookshelf most americans have like several bibles that they put on their bookshelves that they dust regularly church god wants us to love his word love his word if God's people do not seek him and truly hunger for truth, neither God nor his word or his truth will be given to them. That's why the word of God was rare in the days of the judges. That's why, as I listed, ten aberrations from the Mosaic law that we could spot in Judges 17 and 18. Because they weren't listening to the word of God. They didn't love the word of God. They didn't say, hey, you know what? 
as a Levite, I want you to teach me the word. Do you find that anywhere? He had his own personal priest. What, to teach him the word? We don't hear about it anywhere. Wow. And so a generation was raised up that neither knew the Lord nor the Lord's ways because they had no access and they didn't create any access to the word of God. So we live in a day right now in which the heart issue of slavery is still here. The heart issue of slavery is I have the authority to determine who is truly and fully human. And if you're fully human, you'll have human rights. That was the issue of slavery. Politically, they were three-fifths of a human. That's what they finally decided on in, in what, the, was it the Dred Scott decision, 1950 or 1855, around there? Uh, forgive me, I might be a little bit off on that, but the decision that they made. In 1973, do you think that we finally waked up the civil rights movement? We're trying to understand, yes, blacks and all of God's created people have equal human rights. We, we, we were starting to get that in the 70s, and then we did a 180, and in 1973, we said, there are some humans who do not have human rights, and you can kill them. We call it abortion. That, that unborn baby. Fully human. Yeah, we're we're going to decide that the mom has more rights than the baby to the degree where if she wants to take that baby's life, you can do that. You can do it lawfully. Stamp of approval. And the Supreme Court decided that day that they were God. This is the ongoing issue. It's at the heart of racism. It's at the heart of social injustices. It's at the heart of, of so much that, wrong, that, that, is, that is wrong with America. And then finally, when we start discussing and saying, well, let's use the Bible to talk about things when we come to the issue of homosexuality. I've, I've seen people do this. Now, understand my heart. I truly believe that Jesus loved those who were caught in any type of sexual sin. He loved the woman at the well, and yet she was sleeping with a man who wasn't even her husband. She had had four husbands before. The man she was living with wasn't. Did Jesus just say, hey, you know what? You're just breaking the law of God. When you repent, come talk to me. He ministered to her and said, I'm the living water. I am, the, later in John, he says, I'm the bread of life. I'm the one that you need. The, the, I am the only thing that will satisfy that ache in your soul. I'm the only one. And so he ministers truth to this woman caught, it, it, who's living in fornication, sexual immorality. He doesn't take the woman in John 8 who's caught in adultery and pick up a stone and say, hey, I'm right with you guys. I'm going to stone her too. He says, you know what? If there's someone here that is without sin, you go ahead and you be the first one to cast the stone. We'll see who's left. And of course, they all walked away. Jesus treats those caught in these sins so graciously and pleads with them. And, she's, and the woman says, are you not going to take a stand? Are you not going to stone me? And he says, no. But go and sin no more. He understands the captivity and the slavery of sin. And he pleads with her, come out. Leave this life of sin. And so in America, when it comes to the issue of homosexuality, it is one of these top tier issues in our day. In the church today. And I've seen some Self-proclaimed theologians say, well, let me sit down with you, and I'm going to walk you through all of these times in which the Bible talks about homosexuality, and let me show you what I'm going to do. And with sleight of hand, they walk away saying homosexuality is not a sin. And when you walk and when you look at what they do, you step back and you're, you, you'll be horrified. What? That's not what the text is saying, but that's what they are going to make it say. C can I just one thing here on, on this? And that is that the different interpretations are not a reflection of the inadequacy of God's word, but of the inadequacy of the human heart. 
the different interpretations of the Bible do not reflect the inadequacy of God's word, but simply the inadequacy of the human heart. And I see that my time is up. And I, 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 need, us, I need to lay this challenge before us, church. I need to lay this challenge before us, if I can find where I'm at. Here we go. The issue of God's word and seeking him is found, for example, in John chapter 15, and, and Jesus uses this term abide, and he says this, I am the vine, you are the branches. If a man abides in me and I in him, he will bear much fruit. Apart from me, you can do nothing. Church, do you really believe that you must be integrally connected with the vine to produce fruit, to be changed, to supernaturally love as the Spirit would empower you, to have supernatural joy and peace and goodness and kindness and humility and self-control. Do you truly believe that these supernatural fruits of the Spirit can be yours only if you abide in Jesus? And he goes on and he says this, as the Father has loved me, so have I loved you. Now remain in, excuse me, I, I jumped ahead here. In verse 7, if you remain in me and my words remain in you, ask whatever you wish and it will be given you. This is my Father's glory that you bear much fruit. See, apart from Christ, we can't do anything. Apart from his word, we are completely foundationless. We must build our house upon the rock and the teachings of Jesus Christ. What this boils down to, church, is when we get stuck in survival mode, if we choose to drift away from him and not be called back to Jesus. Remember, they were without God and they were without priests teaching the law. The law wasn't there and their hearts had abandoned God. Church, Jesus is saying, abide in me, abide in Jesus, and abide in his word. And if we do this, we will bear much fruit. And every time you get stuck in survival mode, run to the word, let it saturate you. Ab abide doesn't just simply mean to stand on the word, to read the word. To abide in the word. And if you were to do a word study on this word abide, how John uses it, it's more than just remaining. The NIV tends to translate it that way. It, it, is, it is being rooted in. It is grasping a hold of. In America, until we see God's truth as supreme... And not just revere it, not just to honor it, but to love it, to want it. And if you're going to want something, do you not spend time? If you say you love someone, don't you do whatever you can to spend time with them? How horrible if a man were to sit down with his wife and he were to say, Hey, I have this great idea. I've got this whole evening planned and we can just sit and we're going to do this and we're going to talk and we're going to... And she was saying, yeah, I don't think so. And he, and she, and he asked, well, why not? I mean, it, it sounds like a great idea. And she says, well, I'm sorry, hon. It's just that you're boring. Oh, you're boring. You know, like whenever you talk, I just want to fall asleep. But I love you. You, you have to begin to wonder, does she understand love? And yet, church, don't we say, Jesus, I love you. And yet, man, God, every time I open your Bible, it's just so boring. Oh, my goodness. Well, maybe you need to get out of Leviticus for a while. I'm not saying Leviticus is bad. But, you know, I, there's so much in the word of God that can feed you. But if you find that when you spend time in the word and it's just boring, I'm going to say there's one of two things that are wrong. You're either doing it wrong, and that's possible, or maybe this is a heart issue and let me suggest if it's a heart issue church tonight right now right now let's let's get at that issue 
And if our hearts are strained from, if we're, if we're feeding on potato chips and soda and ice cream and candy and cookies, and you are never going to be hungry for an amazing meal. And yet spiritually we do that all the time. We fill up on spiritual junk food and we have no appetite for the word of God. I, I need to close in prayer. Can you stand with me? May God ignite our hearts, church, so that we love his word. So that we are, we're, man, it, on a hot day, I don't want to drink that cold. I want the cold water just rushing over me. I want it to refresh me. Not just satisfy my thirst. I want it to refresh me. Spirit of God, I just ask you, today, Lord God, right now, invade our little lives. As, as we just examine, we, we're laying our lives before you. God, if there is something that's amiss, if we're missing something, God, if we're not hungering for your word, may we be bold enough to step back and say, God, why is that? Is there something that's missing in my life? Number one, do I truly know you? And number two, if I do, am I really pursuing you? Am I really seeking after you? Because your word says I, you will be found. And I'm just asking you, Lord, right now, for every single one of us, may we do that. May every single one of us, God, hunger for your word. May we want to abide and be so deeply rooted and entrenched in Jesus himself as a person and in your word. Father, for those of us who are stuck in survival mode, we're being tossed a rescue line, a life preserver. And that life preserver is Jesus and his word. And I'm just asking you, Lord, please let this truth be alive to us today. And let us walk from here, God, unchanged, as we've heard this truth, but to live it, Lord God, and to love your word and let it change us. Let it refresh us. Let it restore us. That we be like trees planted by streams of water, daily refreshed. Spirit of God, I pray that any who are stuck in survival mode, God, any compromise that we are choosing to just live with and ignore, I'm asking God, stir up the word of God in our hearts. Stir up this longing for you, God. And I'm asking, Father, that we would be purposefully positioned to run hard after you and to dig into your word and let it just be like that water rushing over us. Refresh us, God. Thank you, Father. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.